0: Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. This is episode 172, The French Connection. Billy Friedkin's iconic epic 1971 American neo-noir action thriller film based on a true story, starring Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, Fernando Ray, Real-life cops Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso, who were the cops that Hackman and Scheider are portraying in the film. This was a film that, kind of out of nowhere, garnered eight Academy Award nominations and won five. Best Picture, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, Best Director for Billy Friedkin, Best Film Editing, and Best Adapted Screenplay it was also nominated For Best Supporting Actor for Scheider, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound Mixing. Of those, I think it should have also won Best Supporting Actor and Best Cinematography for sure. But we'll get to that. Part of the interesting story about The French Connection is, in a way, the story of new Hollywood films. Covered that before on the podcast. You can... Google that, there's a good Wikipedia page. Basically starting with, there's a whole host of films that came before it, but really Bonnie and Clyde, I think 1967, is generally regarded as a place you can draw a line in the sand where anti-heroes, moral ambiguity, distrust of societal institutions begin to more dramatically be represented on screen. I think the first quote-unquote new Hollywood film that won Best Picture was Midnight Cowboy in 1969. And The French Connection, I think, is the second quote-unquote new Hollywood film to win Best Picture. I took a look at the list. I didn't see any others that had won between Midnight Cowboy in 69 and French Connection in 72. Now, the book is based on, I'm sorry, the movie is based on a book by the author Robin Moore, which is one of those books, uh, it came out in 1969. It's a nonfiction book. It's about the French Connection case. I've tried to read this book a few times. I was amused to hear Friedkin on one of the featurettes on the extant Blu-ray release of the film say basically the same thing. He, He can, he professes to never have actually read Robin Moore's 1969 book, and all the time that he was preparing or working on the film, that may may or may not be true. It's a book akin to the book *Gomorrah*, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the TV series, loosely based on the nonfiction book. It's similarly almost impossible to read due to the authorial style, and. Part of the journey of The French Connection is that the book was optioned by the producers Dick Zanuck and David Brown. Screenplays were commissioned. The winning screenplay, best adapted screenplay, is credited to Ernest Tidyman, which is a great name for a screenwriter. And, however, it's one of those movies, a little bit like... All the President's Men, original poster of which I'm looking at right now in my office. That too is a movie based on a book which has a screen credit, which is the subject of considerable debate among many of the people involved in the making of the film and much conversation after the fact about who really contributed what. Similarly here, you have a lot of People talking about the fact that while the dramatic events, the essential components of the story of a Marseille, France-based heroin importation ring operating in New York City for 25 years importing incredibly lucrative amounts of heroin, While all that was in the book and was put onto the page by Ernest Tidyman, what was missing, according to Scheider, Hackman, Friedkin, Owen Reutzman, the cinematographer, on and on, is the dialogue that would bring that story to life. And that, in the telling of many of these people, was generated through the director, Billy Friedkin, and Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider riding along with real real life New York narcotics detectives, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso. And as they did such, as they participated in things that were similar to the things that were in the screenplay, a manner of being and a sense of character and certainly lines of dialogue were generated, reported back to Friedkin and included in the screenplay. Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso are colorful characters, They were point counterpoint. They were glass half full, glass half empty. Uh, Eddie Egan was a, to use the euphemistic, colorful, uh, probably does short shrift to someone whose kind of mythic stature now, probably if we scratch beneath the surface, is a little less shiny and glossy you know the era of the all knowing all connected narcotics detective really running roughshod over the rights and laws of individuals and cities being above the law himself uh, th- those era that era can still exist but plenty of great films and books have been written about the subsequent corruption scandals that would rack the NYPD through the 1970s and into the 80s. The 7 5 is a great documentary about that. I highly recommend you check that out. So, Eddie Egan is, in the words of Billy Friedkin, although he's careful, I note, to always ascribe this quality to the character of Popeye Doyle, who is clearly based on Eddie Egan. But of Popeye Doyle, Friedkin would always say, this guy is a monster. He's not someone we're humanizing. He's a racist. He's a violent thug. The line between cop and criminal is not just blurred, it's completely obfuscated in a guy like Eddie Egan. And this is something that appears Throughout Friedkin's work as a director, when he's doing work in the crime space, you can check out my episode on To Live and Die in LA, which is exactly a similar kind of a cop who cuts all the corners, pays the ultimate price. Eddie Egan himself paid a price at the end of his career in a way that is kind of pointedly a big middle finger from the institution itself to Eddie Egan. I'll talk about that when I get there, but... Uh, his career ended with the transition that he and Sonny Grosso both made to the world of film. Eddie was an actor, appeared in this film. He appears as the boss of himself, the Jimmy popeye Doyle character, and Buddy Cloudy Russo, played by Roy Scheider. This film was budgeted at $1.5 million. It went over by $300,000, which Friedkin says at the time, was a pretty, pretty big deal to go over by $300,000. It wasn't a low-budget film for its time, but it certainly wasn't a uh, wasn't an amount of money to sniff at. So going over by 300 was a considerable degree. The way that the case itself, which has been written about extensively, is portrayed, Freakin uses some great phraseology in his discussion of the film. He talks about the film as, quote, an impression of the case, which I love. In other words, there was a lot more criminal justice agencies involved. The screenplay in the movie reduces that to two, which is a New York Narcotics Bureau and a Federal Bureau of Narcotics, both of which don't exist anymore. Um, But basically, this Marseille, France-based heroin importation ring brought 50 kilos a year into New York City for about 25 years. And this scheme stretched from Indochina, Turkey, France, United States, and Canada. It began in the 1930s. And it was dismantled, quote unquote, in the nineteen seventies. It probably provided the vast majority of the drugs that were consumed in the United States during those decades and its participants are well-known and well-documented as is the majority of their ability to escape proper punishment for the crimes committed as represented on the film. Now, I watched this on a Warner Brothers Blu-ray disc, um, which I believe for the moment is the only edition of the film available. There was, the film is now owned by Disney. I've, I just recently read, because you may remember that over the summer, there was a controversy that put the French connection back in the headlines. I'm gonna quote here from an article from the New York Times written by Neela Orr from July 6, 2023. And this, funny enough, the scene that was censored is the only word, is a scene that was the very first scene shot in the film. And it's the scene that opens the New York portion of the film after we have this introduction in Marseille. And it involves the uh, Popeye Doyle's use of a racial slur Which is one of, I think, two that I heard the Popeye Doyle character utter over the course of the film. And what happened was on the Criterion Channel, I guess for whatever, how the rights of these things work is, is difficult. But the Criterion Channel had a streaming version of this. And much of this scene was edited out. The article says people viewing via Apple TV and Amazon found the same thing, but it was reported that the version available on Disney Plus and Britain and Canada remains unedited, suggesting that whoever authorized the cut imagined the moment to be unfit for American audiences in particular. The domestic market, quote, now sees a slapdash sequence that has Russo entering the room clutching his forearm, followed by a jerky jump to the door where Doyle waits. The disparaging exchange is, of course, omitted omitted. What remains is a glitch, a bit of hesitation, the suggestion of something amiss. Never trust anyone. Indeed, that's the line that that Popeye says after he utters a slur. And the shiter character says that the guy who sliced him was white and not black. And Popeye says, never trust anyone. So this kind of briefly was a part of a whole issue that kind of started to come up in 2022, which was Publishers going back and editing out racial slurs or other controversial descriptors like fat or ugly from books, including Mark Twain, Roald Dahl, and films like The French Connection. Now, it's this is, of course, a slippery slope. And I think very pointedly, if you even moderately educate yourself, and I'm talking about reading a Wikipedia page, let alone watching any of the features on the extant Blu-ray disc, you would quickly realize these these terms as used in the film are pointedly used. Because Billy Friedkin's whole interest in making the film is how the cop is a criminal, and how the criminal's are members of accepted, polite society. That is pointed. That's the reason for the inclusion of that language. And the inclusion of it was not put forth willy-nilly. It was the subject of intense debate between Gene Hackman and Billy Friedkin on the set the day they were shooting that sequence. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So this film remains... In the headlines, it is always going to be an iconic classic, not only of the genre, but obviously because of The Car Chase, which continues to be rightfully celebrated as, if not the greatest ever film, certainly among the one or two greatest ever films. We'll talk about that. We've talked about that briefly in my previous episode um, where I mentioned. The Car Chase in Bullet, which is going to come back when we talk about this. Now, Friedkin has said that his approach to this film, this is another one of his clever phrases, which I like. He calls it an induced documentary style. Now, Friedkin, before this, as a younger man, had done some documentary work for the producer David Wolper, specifically a film in 1967, not uncoincidentally the year that Bonnie and Clyde came out, I believe, He made a documentary called The Thin Blue Line, not to be confused with the 1988 Errol Morris documentary of the same name. But this was a ride-along, handheld camera documentary where Friedkin rode along with cops and sought to accurately portray what they were really like and what the job was really like. And that's part of what lent his name credibility to the producers. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find and screen that documentary. I would love to. I've seen excerpts from it, but I haven't been able to find a place I can watch the full film. So Friedkin was after an induced documentary style, and he talks about being influenced primarily by two films. One, the brilliant Academy Award-winning Costa Gavras film, Z and Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which, of course, every filmmaker of of his era would probably say they were influenced by Breathless. But I was inspired to watch Z last night because I I don't think I've seen it. And wow, what a brilliant, brilliant film. However, having watched it, I don't really see the connection between that and the French connection. This may be one one of the places where Friedkin's enthusiasm for something bleeds over into the truth and the reality. He's a very hilariously welcome, unreliable narrator, I would say sometimes. He's kind of a proto-Tarantino. He is an animated, exuberant talker who feels like he's in his own world, but who is very deft at presenting the fruits of that world onto the big screen. He's worked in a bunch of different genres, but he always makes them very uniquely his own. And what is true is that there is an induced documentary style, much more so than in Costa Gavras's Z, which, having watched it last night, has much more mannered camera movement than Friedkin is sort of imposing upon it. In fact, the editing style and the camera movement in Z is artistic and it's expressionistic. It has uh, a bit of the fossy time that Chris and I discussed in our episode about... Um, the Bob Fosse film that we did, which of course, can I recall the name right now? All that jazz. Fosse time was a was a big thing that we talked about there. In Costa Gavras, he uses a lot of these brilliantly edited sequences to flash back, uh, not only into people's memories, but he also then flashes back to people's version of events and so the filmmaking and the camera movement is much more mannered in Z, even though Freakin continually cites that as, I should say, cited since he passed away this year, he continually cited that as the biggest influence. But I do think that the the look of the films could be could be considered similar, and the color palette is is notable. I watched. I made a point of Instagram, I made a point on Instagram of showing you the title card for a featurette that I watched called Color Timing the French Connection, which is sort of hilariously in-depth and spoke to me. If there is a title card that represents me, that would be it. Yes, I did watch a mini documentary about the exciting world of color timing and color correcting film in preparation for a Blu-ray release. I actually love that stuff. And it was fascinating to watch Friedkin and his color timing digital editing expert talk about what they had to work with in the original negative and how they approached uh, remastering it for the Blu-ray release. It's kind of fascinating because what they realized was there's a process and I, I should have made a note of who told them about this process. I can't remember who it was. Uh, But a filmmaker, another noted filmmaker said to Freakin, you know what you should try doing is just reduce your negative, the original negative, to a black and white master and then create another master which has the color um, raised to such a degree that it's kind of blown out and out of focus. And then bleed in the color one to the black and white one to just the degree you're looking for. And that will result in what you're looking for, which was this kind of pastel color scheme. I don't mean pastel in a Wes Anderson manner, but in a 70s film kind of manner. If you watch the film on the Blu ray, I think you'll notice the fruits of that. But it is weird to me that a film of this stature uh, never had a criterion release. And I guess that has to do, I should look more into this for a future episode, if anyone cares, but the rights and licensing issues of what becomes a criterion and what doesn't would be curious to know. Disney, if Disney indeed owns the French Connection since 2019, do they license it for an addition to the criterion? I don't know how that works, but there certainly should be one. There's a lot of great features. I really enjoyed watching the features on the, on the Blu-ray. Now, as I said, a lot of the dialogue was arrived at through these ride-along sessions. And a lot of cops and a lot of actors and a lot of filmmakers will talk about, you know, we rode along to get the flavor of these characters and these locations. And there's a great BBC documentary that's included on the Blu-ray disc by Mark Kermode and here's a little bit of that.
1: Very interested in how cops worked. And and the only way to really know that is to be with them and to step into their shoes.
2: That's the way Billy is. He's a stickler.
0: That's Sonny Grosso, one of the actual that cops. That
2: credibility and the specifics and what he finds interesting, he'll, he'll inject it right into a script. He had a knowledge of
3: the street that... You know, you don't find... uh, This
0: is Randy Jurgensen, who is one of the consultants on the film and also plays a great little small cameo uh, role in the police garage.
2: I remember the first time we took Billy to a shooting gallery. You know, a shooting gallery is, we call that where people who use drugs go to shoot up. And Billy lived in the 90s on 5th Avenue. And we took him to a shooting gallery
0: on 10th Street in 5th Avenue.
2: Eddie or Sonny would pick me up. On the
1: street, we
0: go. That's out, Billy freaking right there.
1: An eight-minute drive up to 135th Street, and uh, suddenly we were plunged into a
2: world of darkness. So when we kicked this door in in this abandoned building, and found about fifteen, twenty people in all kinds of disarray, and with needles in their arms and tubing around and belts around their arms, and Billy was like amazed. <sighs>
1: There were apartment buildings just rife with them. And I guess they wanted to show
2: me what the world was like. And he kept saying, I only live five blocks away. I only live a few blocks away from here. And I think that realization is that all we know and how smart we are, it's seeing those things that you hear about is always a
0: revelation. Now, to me, that's kind of the key aspect for my personal appreciation for stories like this, for nonfiction stories about cops, about drug culture, drug gangs. I just am the type of person that loves any kind of subculture that has its own rules and organizational principles and lingo, codes of being. And this is, I think, why we're fascinated with police stories of one form or another or gangster stories of one form or another, which is because as has become increasingly clear over the the years – There's what we like to think is going on around us in the world, and then there's the real story of what's really going on. And I think collectively, as a species, humans prefer to have more of the made up version where everything's okay and we're not complicit in various forms of societal problems that cops and certainly criminals experience on a day to day basis. The things that Your average police officer sees on a daily basis so far outstrip what you or I think is actually going on in the world on a daily basis. And you've seen this yourself. If you look through a tabloid newspaper, which specializes in bringing you some of the worst types of news stories and the worst types of murders or or crimes, it's almost unreadable to contemplate some of the awful things that occur every single day in cities all around the world. This is what these cops are exposed to. And I think that's part of what Friedkin gets off on as a voyeur and what he's trying to do. Another really important and brilliant contributor to the film is the cinematographer, Owen Reutzmann, who had never shot a film like this before. In fact, I think it was his first released feature. He had worked on a film before this that wasn't released which sounds kind of funny. Uh, It was called Stop. Here's the synopsis. In this unreleased film, Michael and Lee Berger are an unhappily married couple looking to rekindle their marriage. After moving to Puerto Rico to live in his brother's house that Michael inherited after a murder-suicide, they decide to try swinging with disastrous results. No word on why it's not released, but there are some fantastic stills from the production that you can take a look at on IMDb. But this is Owen Reutzmann's first feature film, which is incredible because he would be nominated for an Academy Award, and to my way of thinking, easily should have won. But we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the uh, awards section of the film. And another person I want to particularly single out from the cinematography department is the camera operator, Ricky Bravo, who basically shot the entire Castro revolution in Cuba with a handheld camera in real time. So a lot of footage that anyone has seen of the Castro revolution, he was along for the ride and shot a lot of that action in a manner that has been mimicked in other films like Shea and, and uh, his work here draws upon that. So that's part of the induced documentary style that Friedkin, with his obsessive attention to detail, is after. And the locations. This entire film is shot on location. It's a huge aspect of the film's success. My recent a- Across 110th Street episode, I uh, talked about how the location shooting particularly the inside location shooting on that film was so metamorphosized by the advent of a particular camera, which was a year away from when this was shot. But the exterior nature of this film and certainly the iconic car chase, the street locations, all of this stuff is so great. And it's part of why we still love this film is it's capturing a New York as Owen Reutzman says, it's a New York as it really was, in the same way that I was talking about cops being exposed to a truth. Well, this is not the New York of uh, Manhattan in Woody Allen's eyes. It's not a romanticized, sanitized version. This is what really is a portion of what's really going on. Now, I mentioned... That Friedkin had talked about Costa Gavras and Jean-Luc Godard. But I think, to my way of thinking, there's someone whose films seem much more uh, influential to this, who I've never heard Friedkin mention, but I can't imagine he wasn't a fan if he's mentioning Godard. The films of Jean-Pierre Melville, which I'm a big fan of. I've talked about them on the pod a few times. Going back to 1956, uh, crime drama. Bob Le Flambeur, Le Doulot, Le Samurai, and Le Cirque Rouge. How's that for some French accents? And also Le Silence de la Mer and Army of Shadows. All of those films are films from before 1969. French connection is 1971. Now, particularly Bob Le Flambeur, Le Douleau, Le Samurai, Le Cirque Rouge, those crime films are so they're so stylish and sparse to use some terminology that's attributed to Jean-Pierre Melville. They are neo-noir films, but they are existential. They're kind of nihilistic. They're, uh, they're very French, but they are a part of the path towards the French new wave cinema of a Jean-Luc Godard. And, The French Connection could be one of those Jean-Pierre Melville films, except for the fact that it's pretty talky, where Melville films and protagonists tend not to be so chattery. It's much more about the cinema of expression and visage and action, whereas you have a lot of talking in these films. But I think that Jean-Pierre Melville is someone that seems to be an antecedent to The French Connection, even though it's not mentioned – And one of the featurettes talks about previous cop dramas, you know, what were cop dramas like before The French Connection? And they make the point that really you're talking about the classic kind of noir era of 40s and 50s traditional cop dramas where, you know, they're melodramas. They are films like Where the Sidewalk Ends, which stars Dana Andrews. It's mentioned... In the featurette, it's kind of a precursor of the Dave Toshkey style cop featured in Fincher's Zodiac, the cop who enjoys the headlines.
2: Tonight, I'm not kidding, Scalise. You're going to talk. We found out Morrison had you for about 20 grand and wanted to leave. So you knifed him. Then you got worried about Kenneth Payne sobering up and telling about what happened. So you sent one of your mugs down to his place to knock him off. You trying to frame me for pain. You killed Morrison and you killed pain. And I'm going to get a statement out of you.
0: But these classic noir period cop films are much more melodramatic and they're much more they're much more Freudian. You know, the think about even a neo-noir like Chinatown. We have this Freudian undercurrent, right? With She's my sister. She's my daughter. That goes back to this 40s and 50s era where people's motivations are often of a Freudian nature. Something was done to them. They have weird fetishes or or twitches that are all explained through emotional attachment to something that occurred to them or a parent. But the French connection is unique in that there is no such melodramatic plot device And it is a procedural. It is a story that centers the mundanity of the detective job. It features a lot of waiting around and a lot of following. And as such, yes, it also features some phenomenal chase-based filmmaking, but it's realistic And its commitment to realism is what makes it such a longstanding and iconic classic. So when the film begins, we have, for me, a jarring note right off the bat. And one of the false notes of the film for me. You know, again, I think my job here is not to be enthralled to this film to the point where I don't point out some things that I think don't measure up. And one of them for me, Is the score. The score is by a really fascinating musician named Don Ellis. This was his first film score. I believe he was a horn player. And right off the bat, I don't feel like this score is the equivalent of the film that follows this is the opening titles It's not exactly dulcet, is it? I like a lot of other later cuts of music in the film, but to me, that theme does not have the iconic uh, nature of something uh, like The Taking of Pelham 123, for example. David Shire's title score for The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a 1974 film. Now, we can say that this David Shire score for The Taking of Pelham 1-2-3 certainly owes something to Don Ellis's score from The French Connection because it has elements of that atonal, horn-based, clanging, jarring tone. But for me, you know, an iconic crime film, Get Carter with Michael Caine, it's got that John Barry theme. Taking of Pelham One Two Three has this David Shire theme that are such a fit for the vibe of the film that comes. So unfortunately, right off the top of the French Connection, which starts not in New York City, but it starts in Marseille with this great sequence. Just the music to me doesn't quite live up to what is to come. I do like um, the end credits music. This I love. I would love for this to be the title sequence, too. I think this speaks to the dark, spooky, mysterious nature of reality on the streets of New York City in the 1970s. So this music is continually fascinating and is very well used and sparsely used throughout the film, but that kind of jarring a tonal bit off the top kind of throws me off. Now, I love the opening sequence, which takes place in Marseille. You have this counter story to Popeye Doyle, who we haven't yet met, but you have this undercover French detective eating a square of pizza. (laughs) Somehow the way he eats that with the, with the, with the paper is then uh, doubled later in the film when Popeye is handed a slice of pizza with a piece of wax paper around it by his partner played by Roy Scheider while they're staking out uh, the Frenchman. But this is sort of the introductory part. There's no dialogue whatsoever. It's all visual. It's all production and costume design doing the storytelling. And this is where Friedkin is really a master to me. The history here is that Marseille was a big heroin city. It's a big drug shipping city. It's a port city. And again, non-verbally, we watch the detective notice this American car, which is this beautiful, shiny brown Lincoln. It catches his attention. He's following uh, Alain Chartier. He's onto something. He doesn't know quite, but he's spotted it. But he doesn't live to tell anyone of his discovery because Elaine Chartier's partner, who will eventually meet, Nicole, uh, shoots the policeman before he can catch up to this trail and inform anyone of what's going on. They're on to him just as he's on to them. And there's a great freakin' touch where after Nicoly shoots, the unnamed detective who had just bought a baguette. Niccoli reaches down, rips off a piece of the baguette, takes a bite, and walks away. Just classic Friedkin. It's so good. And then we're into the first scene that introduces us to our two stars, Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, which is the Oasis bar scene where they are undercover. Hackman is playing Sidewalk Santa, and Scheider is manning a hot dog cart to such a great Ongoing thing, which I didn't really appreciate until watching it this time around, where Scheider gets to do so many undercover outfit things. He works at the hot dog stand. He gets to be employed by this tool and die company that is across from the grocery store run by Sal and Angie. He gets to pose as a phone company employee. He gets to deliver the mail on and on. So it's kind of an ongoing and funny bit. Oh, and he also, I guess, at the end, pretends to work at the New York City police garage when. After they've located, finally, the heroine inside uh, the Lincoln, they return it to the Frenchman. So that's kind of a funny thing. Now, a little bit of the backstory of how they got here. What's fascinating, and freaking to his credit, he's really upfront about this. He did not want Gene Hackman. Um, he was of the opinion that um, the role should go to someone like a Peter Boyle which he offered it to. He also offered it to Jackie Gleason, who he thought had the right sort of louche, slightly destroyed lifestyle um, stuff that the real Eddie Egan kind of gave off to a innately laser-focused character assessor like Friedkin, who I think understood Egan's bluster and bravado for the thin layer of protective tissue that it really was, which covered up maybe an essentially dysfunctional person for whom police work provided a path in life that otherwise would have probably gone far off the rails and maybe did go a little off the rails, even as he functioned as a police officer. He did have some troubles, which we'll talk about when we get to that section. So Jackie Gleason would have been a kind of an inspired choice. He might have been a little old, might have been a little too large to do some of the things that Hackman does at this point uh, in his career. But Jackie Gleason does contain that malevolence, um, even though he's much more interior, I think, uh, than Hackman ended up being. (laughs) Another person they spent a good amount of time giving the role to. And Friedkin actually working with was Jimmy Breslin, the New York City newspaper writer. Which is kind of funny. Uh, And even Friedkin is kind of like, yeah, you know, we spent a week or so working on him trying to become an actor. And everyone around Friedkin was like, no way, including the two cops, Sonny Grosso and Eddie Egan themselves were like, what? Now they hated Breslin because Breslin at the time was noted for writing unflatteringly about the New York City Police Department, although he also wrote unflatteringly about New York City gangsters. But there was an animus between the cops and Jimmy Breslin. Breslin couldn't act. And I guess the spell was broken for Friedkin when one day they were talking about the film and what Breslin would have to do in the film and they got to this car chase and Breslin said, well, you know, Billy, I can't drive. I'm a New Yorker. I don't drive. I, I told my mother I'd never drive a car. <laughs> and Freegan said, well, if you can't drive, then you can't do it. And I think that maybe was his out. So after going through Peter Boyle, Jackie Gleason, Jimmy Breslin, um, the always eager Eddie Egan put forth, hey, why don't we do it? Why don't? the real cops play themselves in this movie. And that was considered for a while that Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso would play themselves. Now, they both have parts in the film, but they're small parts. Eddie's got a much bigger part. Um, That was a moment. Then Friedkin went in to talk to his executives, his producing partner executives, David Brown and Dick Zanek. And he was prepared for a common occurrence, which was the studio execs insisting that this film cast someone like Robert Redford or Paul Newman, a huge movie star. And so Friedkin kind of went in beginning that conversation and he was cut off by Dick Zanuck. He said, no, no, no. I think this has to be realistic. I think we need unknowns here. These, this, this can't be a star. And Gene Hackman says that he was kind of perfectly positioned because although he was not known to audiences at the time, he was known within the industry. Now, what's really funny is Gene Hackman, as a real person at that time in his life, was not at all suited to portraying Eddie Egan. He had to have a real crash course in education because he could not sum up the racism the aggression the bubbling over nature didn't come naturally to him he's totally not like that as an as a real person or as an actor you know he's coming out of the theater world in new york city he's coming out of this moment in acting where things are very interior and although he's clearly one of the greatest of our film actors that's ever lived at the time this was someone that Friedkin settled for. He didn't really think Gene Hackman was up to it. And if there was a person that Friedkin was enthralled to, it sounds like during the pre-production and the production of the film, it was Eddie Egan, who was by his side at the camera critiquing Hackman's takes, take by take. Which Gene Hackman, you know, points out is pretty damn tough to put an actor through. But Friedkin recognized the source of the realism he was after, and he was willing to put his actor in a tough spot in order to get what he wanted. So if you wanted Popeye to be irritated, edgy, pissed off, sleepless, well, antagonizing your actor is one way to get there with a psychological war, which sounds like was waged. So Hackman and Eddie Egan did not like each other during the making of the film. Eddie Egan is this blustery cop's cop, man's man, talking up a loud game, running his mouth, running around the streets, staying up all night, womanizing. And he's all these complicated, terrible things. And Gene Hackman's motivation at the time is to continually press Friedkin for another side of Eddie Egan, another side of Popeye. How can I humanize this guy? How can I make you like him and understand him. And Friedkin over and over and over again is telling Hackman, he's a monster. There is no other side. This is it. You're you're trying to find something that has no place in this film. And that's why I think when you read these stories about the censorship of the film, it just completely misses the point as censorship often does, which is this idea that to realistically portray something means that everyone must be protected from it in order to avoid some offense, when in fact that's the intent of the character. He's not a hero. Now, what happens when antiheroes do antihero things in crowded cinemas? Well, guess what? The audiences don't really appreciate it from that intellectual level, right? They get up and cheer when antiheroes do terrible things more often than they sit there and think, wow, what a a bracing indictment of societal mores that character is. Of course they don't do that. That's the double-edged sword. So didn't want Hackman. (laughs) And Scheider, he wanted right away. He had lunch with Scheider. And understanding the yin and yang of these two cobs and that Eddie Egan is the live wire, well, Sonny Grosso is the voice of reason. Uh, If Eddie Egan is a guy who thinks the biggest break is always around the next corner. So let's get there as quick as we can, whether we're on duty or not. Sonny Grosso is more a glass half empty kind of guy. And that's the root root of his nickname, Cloudy, because his name was Sonny. And Eddie called him Cloudy because he was always considering the downside of things. So when Friedkin meets Scheider for lunch, uh, Scheider just inhabits the role perfectly. And they both tell a funny story which is at the end of the launch Freakins. like, you've got the part. And Scheider's like, well, do you want me to read? Do you want me? No, 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 you are him. Just, you don't need to do anything. And he's totally right. And, and Scheider, I think as ever, in these roles where he's yet to be the caliber of movie star he would be come 1975 with the release of Jaws, Scheider is always such a valuable uh, supporting player. You know, he makes... His partner so much better by being by his side, and he contributes so much to this film. Where I don't think Hackman would have won the Academy Award without Roy Scheider next to him in so many of these scenes, and I think Scheider definitely deserved to win. So, the first scene of the introductory introduction of um, of Popeye and Cloudy is this scene where they basically do a warrantless search and seizure of a bar and they find this hapless junkie that, they, that leads them on a chase and that they just basically kick the shit out of. And Hackman, this is the very first thing they're shooting. And he was not comfortable yet with this scene. He couldn't get there. And in one of those excruciating moments, Retold by everyone (laughs) from the cinematographer to Friedkin to Hackman to Scheider. Gene Hackman wasn't up to it on the day that they shot the scene. He just couldn't get there. He wasn't comfortable with the violence. He wasn't comfortable with the racism. He wasn't comfortable with getting there. And it didn't work. And he talks about the end of the very first day of shooting. He is aware, as any good actor or film professional, is that it that was a wasted day. We didn't get anything usable because of me. And he goes to Billy and he says, you know, um, I think this may be beyond me. I think despite all that we did to get here, I don't think I can do this. And Billy Friedkin was thinking to himself, and I think said to his producer, Phil D'Antoni, I think I got the wrong guy. And Luckily, Friedkin had the intuition to punt that scene to the end of the shoot. And Hackman says that after then going through all of the other things they went to to get all of the rest of the film in the can, by the time they reshot that scene at the end, he could get there. He was Popeye Doyle. And this bar tossing scene was something that Hackman acknowledges he couldn't have done without riding along as he and Scheider did with uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso and watching them do exactly what happens in this scene. And, you know, these are things that probably still exist, but certainly existed in much more of a cowboy cop way in the 70s. And, you know, this is the introduction to, to Popeye and to Cloudy
1: Popeye's here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the wall. Come on, move. Move. Come on, sweetheart. Move. All these drugs are being the dropped
0: the and you have move. two white cops going into an all-black bar.
3: Turn around. around. Turn around. Come on, you heart. Come on. Turn around, man. Come, come
1: on, turn around. Get on the wall. Get on Get it. up.
3: Turn around.
1: Hey, you dropped that. Pick hands it up. Pick it up. Come on, move.
2: What are you looking at?
1: All right, bring it here. Get your hands out of your pockets. What's my name? Doyle. What? Mr. Doyle. Come
0: Now, this is taken from real life, where Eddie Egan would insist on being called Mr. Egan by criminals that he was tossing, and as part of his bluster and part of his performative act. And when they shot this sequence, Hackman was brought into the bar where they were shooting, and he's introduced to all of the black guys— who are going to be portraying uh, the customers at the bar. And he's kind of sizing them up and he's thinking, geez, how am I gonna like convincingly brace these guys? These are all way more intimidating guys than I am. And then Sonny Grosso took him around and introduced him to each guy and they were all off-duty narcotics detectives. (laughs) So when you watch that Popeyes here scene, all of these guys, uh, except for the informant who comes in at the end, are all cops. And that's why they're playing their part of that scene so convincingly well. You know, the it doesn't need to be spelled out that they're being harassed, however involved they are or are not in a criminal lifestyle. However, many of them are carrying nickel bags of pot or—, or uh, glassines of heroin or needles, you know, they're in a bar, minding their own business for all intents and purposes. And this sort of harassment is etched on their faces. And it's given voice by uh, one of the actors in particular who sort of mutters under his breath, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, when, when Popeye is just like running roughshod over everyone. It belongs to
3: you. What is this fucking hospital here? <laughs> huh? Turn around there, fella.
1: What do we got here, huh? This belong sure. to you? Huh? Stand up there, naughty. Get your hands on your fucking head. Get in there! You wanna take a ride there, fat man? Oh bullshit. Huh?
0: See? And you know, this this is something he saw Eddie Egan do. And the fact that Hackman is doing it so convincingly is part of the acting journey that Hackman was on. Scheider tells a funny story, um, which is kind of akin to what I was talking about before. He tells this story that he was himself personally uncertain about the racism casually expressed by Popeye and Cloudy uh, while they were filming these scenes. And he went to Friedkin and expressed it just as Hackman expressed it. And you get the sense that part of the job of the director is to kind of remain attached to your inherent concept of something. uh, Even when you're being presented with actors uncomfortable with doing the acting required to bring that thing to life. And I guess the arsenal of tools from Deftly sidestepping those concerns, directly addressing them, giving into them when appropriate, sticking to your guns when appropriate is part of the gift and the job of the director. And Scheider tells the story of kind of having these intense conversations with Friedkin that he and Hackman were having to try and remove a couple of the racial slurs. There's really two. And Friedkin said, no, you, don't, you guys don't get it. Th- these guys— and particularly Eddie, uh, Scheider doesn't utter a racial slur. Scheider's character doesn't. I believe both of the racial slurs uttered in the film come out of Eddie Egan's mouth. But certainly the overall scenes of these bars being tossed are showing an inherent racial dynamic because you have these two cops who basically run roughshod over everybody's rights. Now, when the film came out, Scheiter talks about seeing the film in a predominantly black neighborhood and a very large theater with, you know, maybe a thousand people. And he was kind of cringing because he knew that the scene towards the beginning of the movie, after Cloudy gets slashed by the junkie's knife and Popeye uses a racial slur in describing the junkie who sliced Cloudy, Scheider tenses up, but he says, when Popeye used the term, the audience whistled and applauded and verbally acknowledged the truth that they knew this is the way cops actually talked, but they'd never seen it portrayed in a film before. And whether or not Freakin really had the trust in that, of the sort that you know, there's that great anecdote in our Rosemary's Baby episode uh, with Ted Jessup, where the director, my God, why can't I remember the name of the director? Jesus, oh, you know, he's only the most infamous director, <laughs> Roman Polanski. Woo, What's us I'm 171 episodes in, this is why I'm gonna stop the podcast at 200 episodes, because I don't think my brain will hold out much longer. But, you know, there's a great anecdote in there where Polanski is filming Mia Farrow making a phone call, but she's framed out of frame, and there's a doorway that prevents us from seeing her face talking on the telephone, and there's a classic anecdote where the cinematographer is like, but Roman, we can't see her. You need to let me move the camera, and Roman's like, no, 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 and everyone's like, okay, he's crazy. Let's just let him do whatever the hell he wants, and, you know, months later at the screening, that scene comes up, and... uh And a 1,000 people in the theater lean to the right to try and see around the doorframe. And Polanski runs up to the cinematographer and says, see, see? So this is a similar moment for Friedkin with a much less kind of valedictory reason for (laughs) for being right. But anyway, that's part of what Scheider talks about. Like he and Hackman not really understanding that, uh, you know, these two guys are the stars of the film, but they're not the heroes of the film. And there's a difference. But Cops also loved this film uh, because to them it portrayed accurately the danger, the boredom, the bond between the cops that the job necessitated, the hard work amounting to nothing in the end because of a bureaucracy, because of powers greater than they. So it's one of those films that's loved and accepted by both sides of the game of the streets. And... (laughs) <laughs> Another false note for me was always the you picking your feet in Poughkeepsie thing, which is as they're bracing the junkie after this scene. There's the continual reference.
1: I'm asking you what side of the street he lives on. Hey, shithead! When's the last time you picked your feet? Huh? What's he talking about? I got a man in Poughkeepsie wants to talk to you. You ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh?
3: Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? Hey, man. Come on,
1: give me a break. here. what's he talking about? It. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? You've been to Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it! Come oh, on! Yes, you Yes, I've, I've You've been there, right? Yeah. yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's that! Yes! All right. Mm. You want to shield my partner. You know what that means? God damn it! All went wrong, I got to listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now, I'm going to bust your ass for those three bags, and I'm going to nail you for picking your feet in Poughkeepsie.
0: No. So that always to me felt like it was affected. It felt like it was straining for humor. And I didn't appreciate it until I saw a whole host of making of featurettes on the DVD where Eddie Egan himself talks about this. Sonny Grosso talks about it. Hackman talks about it. Friedkin talks about it. That basically this was part of Eddie Egan's shtick in the streets which was that as much as the bravado shown in the bar tossing scene, they all acknowledge, like, they're playing the part. That's not really who they were. But they swole up into this caricature of the tough cop in order to do that work. And one of the things that Eddie Egan was known for was using this Poughkeepsie thing. And it was designed to keep the suspect off balance while being subjected to intensive questioning, so that in Hackman's agitation and anger and amped up in-your-face nature in this scene, the 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 junkie guy is just like, what the fuck is he talking about? And and he has no recourse except to agree with this maniac who's screaming about picking your feet in Poughkeepsie in his face. And what it does is, it's it's a false flag. It's sort of designed to. Uh, get him to focus on something else so that then they can come around on the side and get the information they really want. And so it's a non sequitur, but it's not really explained as such ever in the film, which is to the film's credit, because to have a, a scene after this where some cop or some rookie cop is like, what's with the Poughkeepsie thing? And then some other cop goes, oh, that's Eddie's thing. He uses it to keep skells keep off balance when he's bracing them. You know, that, that would make the film less good, but- to me, it always read, it's so weird that it reads as weird as opposed to reading as verisimilitude. And there's a funny story that Scheider says. um, You know, I told you that Friedkin's version of things is they had lunch, and before uh, the lunch was over, he told Scheider he got the part. Scheider has a story, which is like he had to audition for the film three times. And He wasn't sure about it because he wasn't used to seeing cops like this in screenplays. So the script, as he was reading it, had all the elements of a cop movie, but it didn't really have any style or any finished feeling. And all of that stuff was gotten, as I mentioned, by these two guys going out with Sonny and Eddie and then telling Billy about what they saw in the dialogue and getting that into the script. But he has this funny story about how he went and auditioned and there was sort of a... A disjointed voice in the audition room that he couldn't really see, had kind of a British accent. And the, the voice kept asking him how tall he was because apparently Billy had had it in his mind that Cloudy had to be six feet tall. And... So Roy Scheider said, you know, I'm, ten, I'm uh, six foot ten and a half, but with the right shoes, I can be six feet. He mentions that once. He goes back a second time, auditions again. And again, he's asked the question, how tall is he? He answers it again. I'm six foot ten and a half, but with the right heels, I can be six feet. He goes back a third time. He's asked a third time and he explodes and he says, are you telling me? That if James Dean or Brando came in here and auditioned for you, you would discredit them from the role because they weren't six feet tall. Who the fuck cares how tall I am? That's his story. That's a good story. I don't know if it's true or not, but we'll let Scheider have that moment. Now, when we get back into the Marseille aspect, which is this kind of intercutting between who our protagonists are here. uh, we get into the mechanics of the operation and who the players are. And now we start to have a little dialogue. We have the actor Fernando Rey as Elaine Charnier. We have the great actor Marcel Bouzoufi as Pierre. And we have Frédéric de Pasquale as Devereaux, who's sort of the TV presenter personality who is going to be used by Charnier and Pierre um, for, t- as the face of bringing the car into the United States, which of course is how they're getting the heroin there. And there's a great story about casting Fernando Ray, which part of Friedkin's charm is he's clearly a weirdo, uh, but is so himself that, although exasperating, I am sure, um, you can't help but love the guy in a certain way. And he is as comedically exasperated with his own errors and foibles as he is anyone else's. And... <laughs> So he has a funny story here about how he ended up with two of the two most important roles in the film in a way, which is the good guy and the bad guy, or the bad guy and the bad guy. You have Gene Hackman, and then you need his criminal counterpart, who is Charnier. Friedkin ended up with two guys he didn't want in those two roles.
1: I remember saying to Wiener, hey, did you see that movie Belle de Jour? Yeah, I said, let's get that French guy that was in Belle de Jour. What the hell's his name? And he said, I'll find out. And he then went out and he called me a day or so later and he said, the guy's name is Fernando Ray and uh, he's available. I said, hire him, sign him. I went down to the airport to pick up Fernando Ray, who was just arriving. And I didn't see anyone I recognized and... uh, I got paged, and I went over to the paging desk, and there's this guy standing there who I did, in fact, recognize, but he was clearly not the guy I was thinking of. He had this little goatee, and he had an aristocratic manner about him, and I remember thinking, what, what is this? Oh, He says, hello, I am Fernando Rey. He says, you know, I'm not French. I'm Spanish. I didn't know that. And he said, you know, my French is not very good either. I didn't know that. Uh, and I realized that he was not the guy in Belle Jour, either. Not. <laughs> I got him to his hotel and got him checked in. And I went to the phone in the lobby, and I called Dantoni and Weiner, who were at our production office at Fox on the West Side of Manhattan. And I said, "You assholes! You fucking morons!" I said, "This is the wrong guy." I said, "What?" I said, "This isn't the guy." He said, what do you mean? I said, that's not the guy in Belle de Jour. So against my better judgment, I now had as the two leads of this picture, two people that I wasn't crazy about that I thought were wrong for the part, both
0: of them. (laughs) That's a great anecdote. (laughs) And what I love about it is this completely puts paid to this idea that many people have after the fact of success about how their innate genius caused them to notice something that everyone else around them didn't notice and to go for this right choice. Part of Friedkin's charm is he's the first person to say, you know, uh oh, man, how wrong was I. And the juxtaposition between Fernando Rey and his aristocratic mien and his uh his his Spanish nature is so perfect. It's so right because the undercurrent of uh the story here is that um, the cops are these blue-collar guys who are freezing their asses off on the job for nothing, and the criminals are these cultured, rich, mannered, societally accepted individuals at the highest levels of whatever industry they're in. So Charnier, played by Fernando Ray, he has this massive boatyard on the harbor in Marseille, and uh, Devereaux, he's a TV presenter. He's doing it for money. You know, these guys are living the life and that's part of the spoils of the criminal underworld. So the, the actor, it turns out that he was really looking for is a guy named Francisco Rabal. It turned out he wasn't available and he didn't speak any English, even if he was available. So Friedkin says the movie gods sometimes take care of you and give you the right person even when you don't think so, because in real life, Friedkin knew that Fernando Rey looked nothing like the real guy who was more of a rough and unsophisticated Corsican rather than this suave sort of Frenchman. But also, in that suavity, as I said, um, that's the point of the juxtaposition with Popeye. You know, Popeye Doyle's a brutal racist. Alain Chartier is an urbane, sophisticated gentleman accepted into society, but they are both poisoning the world in their own way. That's the point of the movie. That's the point of Friedkin's obsession with cops who cross the line. Now, one of my favorite scenes is when after the bracing the junkie scene and and, and going through the bar scene, the cops are off duty And Cloudy wants to go home. He's been stabbed after all. And Eddie Egan has nothing to go to. Sorry, Popeye Doyle has nothing to go to. He has no life outside the job. So he's kind of trying to get Cloudy to go with him to a bar. Just one drink, just one drink. There's a girl group used the Three Degrees. Incredible arrangement. This is an incredible Philly soul vocal group. Um, wow, what an incredible song that is. Se- seek that out. Um, I believe that's Sheila Ferguson singing the lead on that song. And it's just such an incredibly arranged and performed song. And even as excerpted in the film, just their choreography and their complete ownership of this stage and this nightclub where these hoods and these cops are, are blending together. It's so perfectly done. It's such a great use of, of this song. And there's an amazing part at the end of that scene where Friedkin bleeds the sound of the song out of the scene and then pulls up this insistent ringing tone, which is used to indicate the absolute focus of Popeye's commitment to his instincts. Because again, he doesn't know anything that's going on with this table of mobsters. He's looking over at this table and he just says to Cloudy, that table is definitely wrong. And the table includes Tony Lobianco, who's playing Sal. And that's the thread, the random thread that Popeye pulls, which leads them to this whole French Connection conspiracy. And this, again, is taken from the real-life experience of of Eddie Egan, or at least as is performed by Eddie Egan for people on the set of the film. Owen Reutzman tells a story about when they were shooting the cat-and-mouse scene between uh, Alain Charnier and Popeye getting on and getting off the subway car. That while they had some downtime, there was a gentleman who was dressed similarly to Fernando Rey. And Eddie Egan said to Reutzman, check this guy out. Reutzman looks at the guy and he's like, what about him? Eddie Egan goes, that guy's wrong. And he's like, I'll see you later. And he, and he leaves and follows the guy. And then to hear Reutzman tell it, several hours later, Eddie Egan shows up and has a whole story about, oh, yeah, I followed him. And it turns out this, that, and the other. Now. From what I know about Eddie Egan, it's equally as likely that being completely and thoroughly bored by the hurry-up-and-wait nature of filmmaking on location, he thought, forget this nonsense, I'm going to go hit a bar. And he probably just went to a bar for several hours and then turned up with the story. So who knows? But that's part of what makes its way into the film, and it shows you how the truth, quote-unquote, is less important for people like Friedkin and these actors than the essence of the thing that gives them something to hang a scene onto. So Popeye says that table is definitely wrong. And again, this is the class system that's present. This is part of what Friedkin's getting into. These cops are working class cops. They they have access to this place because they're cops. They're greeted on their way in. They're given drinks. Popeye knows the cigarette girl. But they can't really afford to be there on their own. And they're gazing on as these obvious criminals are flaunting their ill-gotten wealth. And that's the animus that fuels these cops, and particularly Popeye, who is a dysfunctional human being, times a thousand, who's found his way into a job that really rewards his worst instincts and his lack of boundaries in his life, his full commitment to the job beyond punching in, punching out. Well... That's admirable in some contexts, but it's also completely dysfunctional. And that dysfunction is ultimately debilitating. And then the film gets into the first of many surveillance scenes, which again, as I mentioned, is about the realism and the boredom of the procedural nature of this type of police work. And again, we have this callback where Popeye is now uh, munching something while he's on the nighttime surveillance, just the way the guy was munching the pizza on the daytime surveillance in Marseille. And unlike the picking your feet in Poughkeepsie thing, there's another neat little bit of business here, which does read pretty well, which is as they're surveilling Sal and Angie after the nightclub, uh, Hackman gives Scheider a straw hat which Scheider tosses into the back window. And somehow we know and understand that this is part of the cops letting other cops who might encounter them know that they're on a stakeout. This piece of insiderness works really well and somehow reads instantaneously, where to me, Picking Your Feet in Poughkeepsie didn't really read. And these initial surveillance scenes are so well-coordinated and they're so... Impressive because of Friedkin's command of storytelling without dialogue. You know, he's not one of those directors who relies on wordy actors to tell us the story of the movie. He's comfortable relying on his visuals and understanding that showing is telling. But in the next scene where we go back to Marseille and now we're learning more about this plot between Charnier and Devereaux, the TV presenter who needs money— Uh, We do have some talking to explain the plot, because here we have to now begin to understand that Devereaux is going to agree to be a part of the process here. And the actor who plays Devereaux is so good at appearing visually to be compromised, venal, broke, money hungry, willing to corrupt his morals. In other words, he's a TV personality. Incidentally, that scene where Charnier uh, disembarks from a boat and goes to meet Devereux and Nicoli is the Chateau d'If, which is where the Count of Monte Cristo was imprisoned. It's a bit like a French San Quentin. You know, it's an island prison destination that you can visit. And Charnier and Fernando Rey eats this moule, this mussel. It's so great. And... When we get back to New York, um, we have another kind of warrantless bar tossing scene, but it moves the plot forward because we have the introduction of this great informant character played by the great actor, Al Fan, And this is a nice little bit of, um, of Friedkin trusting in the the setup without handholding, because for all intents and purposes, it's another one of those uh, bar tossing scenes. But what really is taking place is Popeye is meeting with an informant. But in order to do that, he's got to appear to be uh, arresting someone, harassing someone, as opposed to just having a clandestine meeting with him. And so it's kind of hiding in plain sight. So after he's done, you know, breaking everybody's balls and putting a few guys in the telephone boxes, he sees a guy coming out of the bathroom. Where are you going? You talking to me, baby?
3: Yeah, I'm talking to you. Come here. Get out. Come What's happening, baby? Where you been?
1: Huh? I've been in there. You stand a toss? Sure, I'm clean. <laughs> You shit? No, man. You know, oh man, who are you, Dick Tracy? Somebody? I said I was clean. I'm not gonna get stuck, am I? No, I said I'm clean, didn't I? I do. You know what happens? Now. Yeah, I said I'm clean. Oh, don't get yeah, man. fucking over me! I'll like that, man. Oh, oh, fuck what you I'm your motherfucking. You fucking idiot! Come here, fucking weird. Give me nickel, man. Come on, come give me a nickel. Come on, come on, go on. I told you I'm clean. Why the fuck you wanna come down on me
0: like oh, that? Come come on. Me. Oh,
1: come on. come on! Oh, man!
0: So he gets him into this locked bathroom. Good shit. And then the great al fan just gives everything. him a smile. and an, you know, Everything's
2: everything, baby.
0: They're collins. How come there's
2: something out there? Man, that stuff's all milk. Ain't nothing
1: around. Nobody's holding uh, I got a name for you. Cy Boca, Brooklyn. Boca? Yeah. B-O-C-A.
0: <laughs> what about his wife,
2: Angie? Doesn't register. There's been some talk, though. About what? Shipman. Coming in this week, week after. Everybody's going to get well. Well, who's bringing it? Who knows?
0: This is a great punchline to the scene.
2: Where do you want it? Where do you want it? Oh, shit. This side.
0: So, you know, Popeye's got to be seen kicking the shit out of this guy in order to uh, preserve his position in the theater of of the bar that we've done, uh, which is pretty good. And I think that's done pretty well. And then after this, we meet Eddie, the real Eddie Egan as Walt Simonson, um, who is the supervisor of our two cops here, but is played by the real cop that Gene Hackman is portraying. And what I like about the Devereux character is in addition to the actor that's portraying Devereux so perfectly visually suited to be this this French TV personality. Wow. It's a nice little so, moment of satirizing the media here.
2: Mr.
1: Devereaux, is this your first trip to New York?
3: Yes, it's my first
1: trip. Why did you choose to come by ship?
3: The next several weeks, be very difficult for me. And uh, uh, the middle of the ocean is uh, the only place where the telephone isn't ringing all the time. Do
1: you agree with recent survey finding the show yeah. that Mayor Lindsay was <laughs> the sexiest man in the world?
2: Est-ce que vous êtes d'accord avec cette espèce de qui a donné que
3: le Mayor était l'homme le plus sexy du monde?
0: So, you know, this is, this is used... For subterfuge in this music cue afterwards as the Lincoln is pulled out of the cargo hold, we don't know yet that the heroin is in the car. We just know that this car is so important that we've been given a little bit of a cover story just there about why he took a boat instead of flying from France. Well, the reason he took the boat is to bring the car, which is loaded with heroin, but we don't know that yet as viewers of the film. That's not revealed to us until almost the end of the film when they strip the car and finally find the drugs. That's a neat little bit of exposition there. That's a wonderful shot here, too, that Roisman pulls off, which is the car leaving the shipyard, which pulls back to reveal Nicoli and Chardier watching the car, which, again, it intimates there's something important about the car, but we don't yet know what it is. We just know that this plan has been put in place in order to bring the car here. And then after that, we meet a guy we've been talking about on the pod the last couple episodes.
3: Just cost the life of a good cop. Hey, look, this is the way you're That's
0: Bill in. Hickman, this legendary is is wild man and stunt driver. And shove it up your ass. He did the stunt driving Whatever. in Bullet. He does the stunt driving here in The French okay, Connection, it's and it's he did the stunt driving. And that's a little piece of information. I know you so don't get up on the wrong foot, huh? you have any problems, come to me with him. I'll handle Nothing
3: him. the wrong foot, Simonson. Just keep no, off just my back. Just try and cool it with him. I will. If you have any problems, come to me. I'll handle him, all right? Do me a favor. all right? I'll be happy to work okay. with you. Okay, he's a good cop. Basically a good cop. He's got good punches every once in a while. All
0: right? Fine, fine, Give him a chance. Fine, fine. Just keep him right. off my back. Okay, so that that's two sort of non-actors acting. Um, Bill Hickman, I think, is a little bit better of an actor than Eddie Egan. But still, you have two non-actors acting, which is harder to pull off than you might think in preserving the, uh, the vibe of a film that you've been induced into. And so it's a, it's a tricky little balance there. Uh, Hickman is such a kind of menacing presence in a way. I mean, he's used in Bullet in a brilliantly menacing way. He doesn't really have a lot of dialogue. But he has these great close-ups and these, these big glasses and um, he's, he's just a, he, he's well used. And uh, I don't think I mentioned the third film he did the driving in, which is The Seven Ups, which is sort of an unofficial sequel to The French Connection. Although there is a sequel, a proper sequel, which came out in 1975 called French Connection 2. Personally, not a big fan of it myself. The Seven Ups isn't a great film either, but it is a film that has more merits and charm going for it. It's got a great Roy Scheider lead performance. It's got another great long car chase done by Bill Hickman, like Bullet, like French Connection. And it's got the New York locations and the scenes that are cool. The locations here are brilliant. There's a shot where Popeye wakes up in a bar, and it's brilliantly framed with the bartender pouring some booze on the bar itself in order to clean it. And that's what wakes Popeye up. And Friedkin calls these types of locations part of what he intended as a crude poem to New York City, which is such another great Friedkinism. Another great location is Popeye's apartment. And the little bit of exposition visually that we're able to get from Cloudy uh, showing up And, and trying to wake Popeye from whatever stupor he has uh, induced in himself from his overnight activities, um, is such again, a great use of Scheider who his essential decency, his essential wry comedic presence is very well used here.
3: Bye-bye. Popeye!
1: What? It's
3: me, Cloudy, open the door.
1: I can't.
3: What do you mean you can't? You alright?
1: Yeah, I'm alright. Let yourself in, will you?
0: Like the set decoration of Popeye's apartment is incredible. <laughs> it's just. You can smell the unwashed clothes. They're like bowling trophies, empty booze bottles. The bike of the comely young thing he somehow picked up on his way home from the bar. Eddie Egan's womanizing was apparently legendary. This is a nod to that. And of course, Popeye is handcuffed to his own bed.
1: What
2: happened? <laughs> this is a great. I'm a crazy kid. He locked me up with my own
1: cuffs. Oh,
0: where's the keys? Okay. Scheider's put together. He's got his mm-hmm. turtleneck, his coat, his hair is brushed. He's he's clean.
3: Hi there.
0: I love that Scheider doesn't unlock the cuffs. He just throws the keys at Eddie, or at Popeye. He's surveying the wreckage.
1: Anybody hurt in this wreck?
0: And what's kind of touching and heartbreaking a little bit is he's now leafing through Popeye's scrapbook of his police exploits.
1: <laughs> scrapbook is like
0: you, mess
1: in my pants, will you?
0: It's just, again, it's a nice little touch because the reality of the real person is he had no life outside policing. And eventually, you know, Eddie Egan became kind of a professionalized version of himself, appearing on talk shows and continuing to advise films and sort of try to make a living out of his past, which is, I think, always kind of a slippery slope in a way. By the way, Popeye's home is the Marlboro housing project, it's in Brooklyn on Avenues V, W, and X off Stillwell, in case you're looking for a location tour. And I also liked the car auction scene, which again is a great example of Friedkin's use of these amazing real locations. And again, we're not being force-fed the plot, we're being spoon-fed plot elements which only tie together really at the end of the film. So why are they at a scrapyard? Why are they buying this car? this junker car for $25 that's being auctioned off. Well, we learn later, you know, a whole half hour, 40 minutes later in the film, they're buying that car in order to fill it with the cash they get from the heroin they brought in on their Lincoln. So presumably they don't return the Lincoln to France. The Lincoln stays in America and they need a junker car because Alain Chartier's cover is that he's a scrap metal dealer. And so we have this nifty scene, which, again, does this great little trick of kind of telling you exactly what's going on, but it but it doesn't tell you how that is important to the ultimate plot. And I love that. I think that's a confidence in the storytelling. And confidence in storytelling is something we've talked about, you know, with Tarantino, like in Jackie Brown, the confidence to start Jackie Brown with – that song across 110th street, which is so identifiably a New York song, but he's starting a Los Angeles based movie, the ultimate Los Angeles based movie with a New York song because it fits. He has the confidence to stay true to that. And one thing I thought about, you know, I don't know if you guys watched, uh, the Gotti, uh, docu-series that's on Netflix I've got some problems with it. It's the second in a series done by the same production company. They're very glossy. They're very highly produced. However, they, to me, suffer from some problems in orientation and approach. Granted, it's probably difficult to avoid telling the story everybody kind of wants you to tell, which again is this sort of, I'm not going to say sanitized version of Gotti, but it's kind of the version that is conventional wisdom. But I've gone down the rabbit hole uh, subsequent to watching this new Gotti docu-series of reading the transcripts of the Gotti tapes from the Ravenite Social Club, which were used to indict and eventually incarcerate John Gotti, and the testimony of his consigliere and underboss, uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. And there's a different Gotti there than the one we are fed by the media, the one that even Gotti himself wanted to feed the media, the Dapper Don, the Teflon Don. Um, There's a more brutal and less flashy version that I'm more interested in, but the documentary filmmakers can't seem to avoid obfuscating through all of the hagiography and the inflation of this gangster, this killer into something that he both was and wasn't. But one thing that occurred to me, and that is really really well illustrated in The French Connection, by the scene where Popeye and Cloudy press their boss, Simonson, to get a wiretap on Sal and Angie's home and place of business, is that the government only catches gangsters by essentially cheating, If you think about it, getting a wiretap and being able to listen in on private communications is cheating. And only the government can do that, right? And and have that be the basis for your conviction. Now, you're dumb enough to talk, so they're recording you admitting to things. But think about it. On a level playing field, the government wasn't able to catch the mafia doing things All the time. The mafia was more sophisticated than law enforcement in covering their tracks. And the government had to resort to the RICO statute in order to dismantle the mob. They had to be able to prove that you were aware of and a part of a criminal enterprise larger than yourself. They had to catch you discussing two predicate acts, two criminal acts in order to charge you with the racketeering influence and corruption statute. In a way, you could look at that uncharitably and say the government had to cheat in order to bust up the mob, that the mob was more sophisticated than law enforcement and always two steps ahead of them. And the only way really to get them was to bug them and to catch them talking in their cars, in their homes, in their social clubs. It's just kind of a funny aside. Now, as we get into uh, closer to the iconic chase scene, one of the great things about this movie is this was made at a time in 1970, 1971, when great risks were taken. And you would not be able to do this today. And because you can't do it today, you'll never see something like it again. Which is basically that... Grosso and Egan were so powerful in the New York City Police Department at the time that being by Friedkin's side on location, they could do things like set up a traffic jam on the Brooklyn Bridge for 20 minutes without getting any permits. And Egan and Grosso could chase away any cops that showed up or said, like, what's going on? You guys are creating a massive problem. They literally stopped traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge uh, without permitting in order to to shoot the sequence where – uh with Hickman in the back seat, they lose, uh, they lose track of the suspect that they're trailing. And again, a lot of what's now familiar to us in terms of cop tradecraft is really demonstrated, you know, maybe for the first time in these street sequences. These divisions between the cops and the feds, Uh, that exist in the animosity between uh, the Hickman character and Popeye. When they're on surveillance, those divisions are forgotten. These are professionals doing their jobs. Again, it's wordlessly, brilliantly choreographed and photographed. It's sequences of visual storytelling, largely free of score even. And the great juxtaposition in the film between the two lifestyles is the French meal that is, of course, film French in quotes because our Frenchmen are eating snails and, you know, having little coffees poured for them. The cops are on stakeout across the street, freezing, eating cold pizza, drinking bad coffee. And the restaurant, the Copain, was one of the first in New York City, because, of course, I had to go. There's so many great little locations that, that it sends me to Wikipedia to look them all up. Well, the restaurant that the two Frenchmen eat at is called the copane it was one of the first in New York City to actually do delivery. And here's how the delivery is described in a New York Times article from 1945, describing this door-to-door service as a strange new phenomenon, as Eater wrote, Quote, there is no deposit on any of the dishes in which the food is delivered, for the restaurant's agent waits while it is transferred to one's own receptacles and then takes the original containers back. To the restaurant on the return trip. Depending on the main course, selected prices range from $2.10 to $3. French bread and relishes are included. For delivery, you simply call the restaurant, phone number PL80554, and place your order before 6 p.m. And This was like a restaurant that had a rich and famous clientele because it was across from Beekman Place, which was a block that was known at the time as the most exclusive in Manhattan. It had a lot of celebrities and and wealthy people live there. And so this restaurant is really well chosen. And what's great about this restaurant sequence also is that we learn after it that all of these parties are onto each other. You know, Elaine Chartier and Frog Number 2, as he's referred to, they know they're being followed. Um, But everyone kind of continues to talk themselves into going forward with this deal when walking away would have really been more prudent. And I think these long sequences of the triangular surveillance, the foot surveillance, where one cop follows a guy until another cop picks him up and then hands him off to a third cop and so on and so forth, that's arguably as important to the film as the noted car chase is. The car chase is thrilling, but it's actually way less important to the plot than these foot or uh, slower surveillance sequences are. We'll talk about that when we get to the car chase. One of the most famous scenes of the movie is the drug test scene. This, to me, is, again, something that Friedman would do brilliantly in To Live and Die in L.A. And I talk about it at length in my episode about To Live and Die in L.A., which I encourage you to listen to. It's process, right? In To Live and Die in L.A., there's the genius sequence of Willem Dafoe counterfeiting $20 bills. And it is accurate because it's advised to Friedgren from an actual counterfeiter who is telling him how he would do it. And here in the drug test scene, we have this documentary feel, but we also have the dramatic overlay with some dialogue from Patrick McDermott, who is playing Harvey the chemist, and he's testing the heroin
2: for For purity. 180. 200. Good housekeeping seal of approval. 210, US government certified. 220, lunar trajectory. Junk of the month club sirloin steak. 230, grade A poison. Absolute dynamite. 89% pure junk. Best I've ever seen. If the rest is like this, you'll be dealing on this load for two years. So you tell me it's worth a half million? How many kilos? 60. 60 kilos? Eight, Eight big ones a kilo, right? This stuff off, take a seven to one hit on the street.
3: And by the time he gets sound the nickel bags, it'll be at least
2: 32 million. Thank you, Howard. Take what stuff there with you and good night. Uh-uh. Not that one,
0: the little one. It's just a nice little joke aside there, as the as the drug tester takes the full kilo of heroin as opposed to the small amount he's testing. That's a classic Friedkin scene. Right? It's procedural overlaid with the dramatic. There's this clunky lighter that the uh, chemist uses to light his Bunsen burner, which is going to heat up the mineral oil, which is going to interact with heroin and, and the temperature that it arrives at tells us the purity. This is all great stuff. And also the mechanics of the dealing. You're gonna step on it. You're going to cut it seven or eight times so that you have seven or eight times the amount. One kilo becomes seven kilos. So if you have 60 kilos, you have whatever 60 times seven is. That's the, those are the mechanics of drug dealing. That's why it's so incredibly lucrative. And when we get to the, the surveillance or the chase scene, it's a foot chase scene between Charnier and Popeye on the subway. This is a, again, to me as brilliant a choreographed scene as the car chase Friedkin, in this scene, this subway kind of cat and mouse between Popeye trying to follow Charnier, Friedkin wanted to do a modern version of Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, the mutual awareness of the other without acknowledging each other. And again, this is shot without a permit in the subway, just because they had Egan and Grosso with them who could badge up any cops that were like, hey, what are you guys doing? Ricky Bravo, the camera operator, was in a wheelchair so that they could use a small crew to shoot kind of those moving shots without laying down tracks. And it's again, just something that you just can't do anymore. You're capturing New York as it was, and Charnier beats Doyle in his own city. That little wave at the end, which again is so nicely played off at the end of the film, when Doyle uh, waves the same way. They're playing this cat and mouse, and it's just so brilliantly choreographed. It's really the things that I think everyone talks about in the film are some of the kind of uh, obviously the car chase and some of the dialogue sequences, but I think all of these nonverbal sequences are really why the film is most worth watching. And Doyle, the characterization that Hackman puts forth, especially knowing how it started is all the more incredible. There's this weird scene that I didn't ever really understand again, like the Poughkeepsie reference, um, there's a scene where there's a car accident. And it's where the confrontation boils over between the Fed, played by Bill Hickman, who's been riding Doyle's ass of, you know, his one of his hunches cost us a good cop. Well, it boils over at the scene of this outdoor daytime car accident. And I'm, I was never quite sure why, are, why is this happening there? Uh, but it turns out when you hear Freaking talk about it that, and I'm not sure this is actually contained in some of the anecdotal dialogue that's going on around the scene, but what's supposedly happened is that the accident, which has claimed a couple of young lives here, are because the accident victims were using heroin. Works were found on them. And I guess what it's supposed to show us is this is the cost of this otherwise sexually presented drug business. So in case you're, you've had your eyes opened to the $32 million and how cool it is to smuggle heroin, Friedkin is using this scene to show you, here is the toll. These people died because of that heroin. But it never really registered to me all the times that I've seen the movie. But that's why this is, that's why that scene is there. And of course, Simonson, you know, yells at Egan. I mean, yells at Doyle, takes him off the case. Hackman is kind of dejectedly, lumbering home. And this next scene brilliantly starts with this kid on a tricycle kind of biking away from the camera, which evokes innocence and safety as Doyle trudges home. But he is then the attempted victim of an assassination attempt from the Nicoli character shooting at him from the roof of his own building. And... This is the whole point of Popeye Doyle is that he is instantly energized and back. The shooting reinvigorates him. It's through action that his character is freed from the ennui of having his entire purpose in life taken away from him, which is being taken off the case. And I think one of the interview subjects in one of the featurettes says that, quote, through action, it's how characters like Doyle break out of the dark corner of their own psyche. And this guy's talking about the fact that in the classic noir cop movies of the 40s and the 50s, those dark corners are usually explained away through some kind of Freudian analysis. Like I mentioned, the mother-sister thing in Chinatown to be, cite like later New Hollywood example. But Doyle, we don't have any of that here. You know, it's not like because Doyle's daddy didn't love him that he's this devoted crazy cop. Uh, it 's not because his mommy you know made him uh, made him sleep in her bed that he is a womanizer we don 't have any of that. What we have is through a bolt action rifle <laughs> narrowly missing him, Doyle snaps out of it and shoots into action and brings the film into its final third and brings it home that 's the essence of this role and let 's not forget when you look at books or films about criminals, about cops, you know, one thing they have in common often is that Freudian aspect where sometimes these are people who don't have anything else. And you can, you can read in their own words, Sonny Grosso, like his dad died when he was very young. He was forced to be the man of his household and take care of his younger siblings, take care of his mother. Well, he becomes a cop for much of those same reasons. Egan is one of those guys, it sounds like, who, if he wasn't a cop, would probably be a criminal. And, you know, um, the job for both the cop and the criminal is the thing. And they give themselves over to it. And often the damage extends far beyond themselves, their loved ones, their friends, their family. This is what I wanted to mention, that soon after this movie was released— Uh, Eddie Egan was gonna retire from the NYPD. And Wikipedia says that on his retirement day, November 1971, he was fired from the NYPD. He was fired on his retirement day. Now, that is cop code for fuck you, right? Because that means he loses his pension. And that means he pissed off someone in the administration, or his he flew a little too close to the sun. We won't know, but he was fired on his retirement day, and the official reason given was that he failed to make court appearances in conjunction with his cases, and he failed to turn in contraband, narcotics, and weapons, and he was stripped of his pension benefits. Later, he won an appeal, and his pension was reinstated which was probably the outcome that whoever did this to him knew would occur, but they still hit him in a brilliantly NYPD way where he lived, which was his public reputation as super cop, right? That's, that's part of his Wikipedia page. That's why they did that. Not because they thought they would forever strip him of his pension benefits, but because they wanted him to be seen as perhaps they knew him to be. That's fascinating. I'd love to read more about that. All right, let's talk a little bit about the car chase. One of the featurettes uses a term about this chase. It calls it the most celebrated car chase sequence in film history. And I can get with that because I've been on the record before as saying, I think Friedkin's car chase in To Live and Die in LA is better than this one. I'll put better in quotes. But I do think it's right to say that the French Connections car chase is the most celebrated car chase sequence in film history and always will be. And it should be. So I read a couple of things because I was curious. uh, What's the history of car chases in movies? And I saw something on TCM which said, quote, car chases in film were staged as early as the motor vehicle itself. Take, for instance... Alf Collins's Runaway Match from 1903, Ted Wilde's Speedy from 1928, starring Harold Lloyd in his last film, or Don Siegel's The Big Steal from 1949, or Gun Crazy from 1950. But those are either comedic in terms of the Harold Lloyd or kind of that 40s feeling, you know, big gangster cars turning the corner, that type of chase. But film critics generally agree the first modern car chase is Peter Yates's chase in Bullet, which I talked about recently, um, 1968. And Peter Yates had made a film before that called Robbery, set in London, which was filmed in 1967 and the car chase that he filmed in robbery is why he was hired to direct Steve McQueen in bullet and bullet is a car chase and a film that shares some creative DNA with the French connection because bullet was produced by Phil D'Antoni. who was the producer, one of the producers of the French connection and the driving was done by Bill Hickman who also does the driving here in The French Connection. So I think it's really important to remember that bullet came first. And Robbery's chase came before that. I think it's really important to say that the British director, Peter Yates, is entirely responsible for the modern car chase in crime thriller films. Because... You can draw a direct line there creatively, and Bill Hickman for that matter, because regardless of who the director is, someone's got to do the actual driving, and it's Bill Hickman more often than not in these films. But Peter Yates, from robbery to bullet, the whole reason that the car chase exists in The French Connection is because Phil D'Antoni had produced bullet, and the chase in bullet through the streets of San Francisco had become such a phenomenon, something that the film was so identified with that D'Antoni said, well, we should do that here. But they kept putting it off through pre-production and production of The French Connection because D'Antoni took the cast and crew aside and said, I want to do a car chase, but only if we can do a better one than the one we did in Bullet. So how do you do that? and both friedkin and d'antoni talk about the fact that it was while walking around new york that they allowed the sounds and the sights of the city to kind of wash over them and that they felt you know it has to somehow be this and that one of them mentioned the the eleva- that there used to be an l train an elevated train over certain streets in new york and that the original twist of the French Connection car chase is that it's really not a car chase; it's a subway car chase. The sub Popeye is chasing a subway car. That's the innovation. And so, I think Bullet directly influenced Friedkin and the French Connection in that they didn't want to do two cars chasing each other because that had just been done, relatively speaking, in Bullet. And so that's the innovation here. And the connective tissue is producer Phil D'Antoni, who would then go on to direct a movie, which is The Seven Ups. A lot of people love The Seven Ups, I think, more than the film really is a successful uh, piece of dramatic crime filmmaking. But it's got a lot of charm because it stars Scheider in – What's essentially a sequel to The French Connection, even though for rights reasons it's not presented as such. The film's actually written by Sonny Grosso, one of the original cops in The French Connection. It's directed by Phil D'Antoni. I'm going to say that's maybe a little bit part of the problem. He's not really a director. But it also stars Tony Lobianco and Bill Hickman is in it as well and does the driving. It's got a long, long car chase. Um, but this chase is so perfect because it's, it's Popeye Doyle's persona. The chase is an extension of the character. The way he is in the chase is more the way he is than he gets to be anywhere else in the movie. It's the purest distillation of him. It's the 240 degree purity heroine version of Popeye Doyle, willing to do almost anything, slamming on the brakes only to avoid a baby carriage but willing to destroy everything else around him in pursuit of his goal. And it's, it's incredible. It's about 17 minutes of absolutely insane documentary-style filmmaking. And if you're a completist, uh, the chase kind of begins, again, after some foot, foot sequences but it really begins at the Bay 50th Street Station. And it's beneath the elevated railway in Bensonhurst. It's about 26 blocks of the Stillwell line from Bay 50th Street all the way to 86th Street. That's where the chase takes place. And it's actual street traffic. What you see in the forward-mounted camera is not carefully choreographed additional vehicles operated by professional drivers affiliated with the film. It is not that, okay? These are actual people actually driving about their everyday lives. And Bill Hickman is driving 90 to 100 miles an hour, avoiding as much of that as he can. Here's a little clip of a documentary that talks about how this was accomplished. Also, Bill took up the
1: challenge. He said, you want to see some Harry driving? I said, yeah. He said, you got the balls to get in my car? I'll show you some fucking driving.
3: Prior to getting into the car, uh, Billy spoke to Bill Hickman in the following manner. We're only going to be able to do this once. We're not protected. Um, We're lucky if we come out of this thing without being arrested. Uh, We're going to steal this shot Uh, So you got to give it to me you really got to give it to me I think we started in Coney Island at
1: around Bay 50th Street And he drove through My memory is 26 blocks of traffic with no control And he kept his foot on the gas except when he had to brake, and he was going at
3: speeds of 90 miles an hour He weaved we went on the sidewalk once. We faced the oncoming traffic once. During the ride, we careened or creased a city bus so that the doors wouldn't, would, would not open. Billy kept saying to Bill Hickman, give it to me, give it to me, only once we're doing it. This is fucking great, do it. And Bill Hickman responded. There were... Accidents that occurred during the chase that were not supposed to happen. There was one uh, I remember vividly because it it really was a
2: a scary uh, accident. We thought that perhaps someone might have gotten hurt. They were shooting a second unit shot of Hackman driving the car underneath the L. And we had our second unit camera in the trunk of the other car, which Hickman was driving. And they wanted a real high-speed sequence where where these pillars were kind of strobing past the car. What they had not counted on was somebody coming out of their house, getting in their car and driving into our shot. And that actually happened. Suddenly, I see this blur and a guy pulls right in front of me uh, and he wants to turn left. And I don't know how fast I was going, as fast as the car would go in the three block period. Uh, And I hit him and then it put me right into a pillar. Bam.
0: So, you know, these are things that are unadvisable. And actually, Owen Reutzman, who's the cinematographer, is one of the voices you heard there, along with Randy Jurgensen, who was an uh, actual police, uh, policeman who was an advisor on the film and would go on to be an advisor on many other films. He also plays a really funny, critical role in the police garage scene where he's kind of the guy delaying the Frenchman from getting their car after they're all irritated But, you know, unlike what we know about later car chase technology, where camera cars and towables is a thing, you know, where you're towing the car and yet you're making it seem like the actor is driving the car. We're not there yet here. You know, Hackman is in those shots. He is driving the car, albeit not at the similar speeds that uh, that Hickman is driving the car. But this is filmed in a different era. You know, one of the innovations that I talk about in the To Live and Die in LA episode is this swivel cam concept that Friedkin invented in order to do the car chase there and to get looks in a car chase that you've never seen before. But in that movie, even though he's running and gunning that film too, but you have much more control. You have other drivers and you have a lot of choreography going on. They didn't do that here. They just had this stretch and they had the best and wildest stunt driver in the business. And they took incredible risk that could have ended in a Vic Morrow style tragedy. They could have killed Gene Hackman and they could have killed any number of innocent civilians going about their lives. And so it's a risky and almost unsupportable bit of filmmaking that we can only feel good about because none of that happened. Um, But man, it's pretty close. You know, one of the great underappreciated things, I think, about car chase sequences is how important the less sexy and kind of wow shots really are. For example, in the beginning of this chase, okay, after after the Frenchman gets on the subway, Hackman can no longer chase him on foot. And so there's this one shot under the overpass where Hackman tries to stop an oncoming car in order to take it and chase the subway train. He fails. He then successfully stops a second car and takes it. And he then gets in the car, which swerves in front of the camera in order to do a U-turn, and then takes off screamingly fast away from the camera and drives down under the elevated train. Now, in actuality, this is a pretty complicated setup, which involves a lot of timing and execution from everyone, but it's not by any stretch the most famous or noteworthy shot in the car chase. But the chase absolutely requires this beginning shot in order to work. Like a car chase is a product of the setup, the meat of the chase, and the conclusion. And all of those parts are equally as important. And as I've watched a lot of car chases over the last few weeks, in Bullet, in This, To Live and Die in LA, Robbery. These are the things I focus on. Um, The more interesting parts of how you tell a car uh, car chase story visually. Because to me, they are cinema, distilled to its essence. It's sight and sound. It's not dialogue per se, but it is acting because you have to have reactions to your actors in the cars. And you can read an infinite amount of stuff and watch an infinite amount of stuff about how this car chase was made. Um, in Mark Kermode's great BBC documentary, kudos to his videographer who replicated the flare reflection on the outside of Popeye's windshield. They do that with a, <laughs> Kermode's driving the car or perhaps being towed because he's looking at the camera the whole time. So he might be on a towable. Um, but there's the iconic reflection of the overhead train tracks reflecting on Popeye's windshield. Uh, which is visible during all of Popeye's driving shots. And it's the documentary grabbing nature of these shots that makes this chase what it is. If it was meticulously permitted and planned, it just wouldn't feel as visceral as it does. And that's why it's never going to be topped, really. You know, you can say all you want about a chase in a film like Ronan, but that is, that's not even the same thing. You know, that's essentially CGI to me because- although there is professional stunt driving done, it is so coordinated. It's such a piece of film trickery. This chase was done. It was driven and captured. Uh, Friedkin himself is in the backseat of the car, you know, operating the camera. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. You can't do it anymore. And the chase concludes with, Probably the most infamous part of the film, which is
3: Popeye
0: shooting the Frenchman in the back.
3: This is Randy Jurgensen. There's a confrontation. Jean leans against the rail with his gun, and the Frenchman faces him, turns to leave, and Jean shoots him. Well, during the rehearsal, which I saw, I was across the street. I come running over to Billy Freakin, and how presumptuous of me, I say, you can't do that. Can't do what? I said, you can't do that. You have a New York City detective whom I know, and you have him shooting somebody in the back, and this somebody is unarmed. That's murder. You can't do this. Fast forward six, seven, eight months, we're in a theater in Manhattan. There must be a thousand people in the audience. And we come to that particular scene, and I'm saying to myself, watch. And just before Gene shoots him, there's that moment of silence of where you can hear everything. And then Gene shoots him. 1,000 people in the audience stand up screaming, cheering. Billy runs up and he said, it works for them, so it's got to work for me, so it should work for you. Not only that, that turns out to be the poster shot of the French Connection.
0: One of the things I'm realizing is I also heard this same story told by Sonny Grosso as if he was the one who went to Friedkin and said, you can't do it. I also heard it from Eddie Egan saying he is the one who went to Friedkin and said, you, no way can you show my character shooting a guy in the back. So it just goes to show you that story becomes a part of the story. And this is all make believe who said what to whom and when it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to get to the quote unquote truth. Now, here is maybe a hot take. To me, this car chase sequence, which, again, is about 17 minutes, it stops the film and the film doesn't really get going again. After the car chase, because we have been in this kind of meticulously presented tradecraft story, this procedural of how we use shoe leather and ingenuity to track down what's going on on a criminal conspiracy that is being kept from us. The car chase, as bravura and insane as it is, incredible as it is, it just is something that to me should have maybe ended the film. So what if the car chase did end the film? If after the deal goes down and the raid which takes place in that abandoned facility which currently ends the film, what if the car chase stems from that and the car chase is between our two protagonists, Popeye and Elaine? And that Chase and the film would end with Popeye shooting Elaine on the steps, in the back, unarmed, as he shoots Elaine's partner. Because the the literal ending of the film to me, which is like, you know, this is the police, you're surrounded, come out with your hands up. Like, literally, that's said. Come out with your hands up. Like, it's a big shootout scene. I I don't think I have ever appreciated a shootout scene in any film. It's why most Westerns leave me lacking because that's the ending. It's why a lot of crime films leave me lacking because the big shootout where everyone kills everyone else, it just, it's dumb. And it's just uncreative. And if I do like a film, it's because it's doing it differently. You know, heat. Heat. It's a two-person chase. Um, But big shootouts such as the kind that end The French Connection to me are unrewarding. And the film doesn't really get back on track for me after this car chase, because you have this incredible sequence, which ends with, as Randy Jurgensen just said, the poster image. But then we've got to go back to the story. We have Scheiter in the parking garage coming face-to-face with Sal. We have yet more street surveillance scenes. Now we go back to the Lincoln, and we have a lot of stuff that takes place, all of which is fine, but you're so juiced and jazzed after the chase, it's hard to get back into it. And in fact, the, one, the only scene I really love towards the end of the film is when they're breaking down the car in the police garage. And I love this scene because, again, this is part of the procedural stuff that we're being shown. To me, it's equivalent of how we test heroin for purity. It's the equivalent of how we bring drugs into the country. We have the scene where, after sitting on the car and arresting a bunch of guys who were gonna just steal the tires, the cops strip the car in kind of what's always struck me as a bit of silly film business because if you can strip out a a giant heavy sedan to the bare bones as they do in the scene and then put it all back together again within 4 hours so that no one could tell the difference uh I don't think that's possible but it's a bit of movie magic that I guess we're willing to uh entail but what I love about this scene is The procedural element of how you actually go about dismantling a car, number one. I love all that stuff. I love looking at, here's how you unscrew this. Here's how you pull this out. I love all that. And I love that the guy who's doing it, Irv, is the actual mechanic for the NYPD who discovered the drugs in the actual French Connection case against the actual Jean Gihan, who is Cinemath- cinematified in this film as Elaine Chartier, and so this is the real guy, and he's recreating his own actions and his own contribution in this film. I love that, and he has a realness to him that you can't fake uh, because this is really what he does. And I love this use of Scheider was too. The
3: way to the car when you got it. Irv. Forty-seven hundred and ninety-five pounds. Sure. That's what it was. Forty-seven hundred and ninety-five pounds when it came into the shop. Owner's manual says four thousand six hundred and seventy-five. It's one hundred and twenty pounds overweight.
1: When it was booked into Marseille, it was 4795. That's still 120 pounds overweight. Jimmy's got to be
3: right. Listen, I ripped everything out of there except the rocker panels. Come on, Irv. What the hell is that?
0: And then we have the procedural business of how you take apart the rocker panel. And the cutaway look to Irv as he realizes he forgot one part of the car is so brilliant. And again, this is the documentary approach. And it's like, think about the restraint to play this moment. They've discovered the heroine. The whole reason. We're two hours in the movie. There's no crescendoing music. There's no anything. You know, that's part of the impressive discipline here.
1: Here's Randy Jurgensen
0: at the desk here. Who's I am
1: Mr. Devereaux.
0: And again, they, put, they just put the car back together uh, you know, perfectly after ripping out every single thing in the film, which is kind of funny. Now, after they'd filmed the entire film and they were in post-production, one of the interesting things here is that the studio didn't get it. Part of the interesting thing is that the producer, Dick Zanuck, his father was Daryl Zanuck, who's one of the most legendary and iconic titans of Hollywood, old-school Hollywood – but in this moment in 1971, we're in kind of a changeover, and Dick Zanuck represents new Hollywood, and his father represents old Hollywood. And they tell an anecdote in one of the featurettes about screening some of the dailies, and it's the picking your feet in Poughkeepsie part that they were screening, and they were screening the first iteration of it where everyone kind of understood Hackman wasn't doing it. He just wasn't getting it. And so Daryl Zanuck is sitting in the back of the screening room and is just coughing. And his coughing is understood by everyone to mean, what the fuck is this? And so they did not understand the film. And the <laughs> the producers or Friedkin starts getting notes from the studio that they don't like the title. And Scheider says, their attitude was like, what the hell is the French connection, a perfume store? So they wanted to change the title to something simple, like Doyle or Popeye. They just didn't get the French connection. And actually, Dick Zanuck left his father's studio and, and his, his producing partner, David Brown, left the studio while the film was still in post-production. And they weren't even invited to the premiere. They had to pay their own money to go see the film they were instrumental in bringing to the big screen. And as I mentioned, the film would have.
3: Films nominated are.
1: Success
0: a Clockwork Orange,
3: a Hawks Film Limited Production, Warner Brothers, Stanley Kubrick Producer. Fiddler on the Roof. I think Merit's you can Cartier recognize who is United announcing
0: Artist, the Best Picture nominees at the 44th Oscars. The
3: French Connection, Dantoni Productions, 20th Century Fox, Philip Dantoni Producer. The Last Picture Show, BBS Productions, Columbia, Stephen J. Friedman, producer. Nicholas and Alexandra, a Horizon Picture Productions, Columbia, Sam Spiegel, producer. May I have the envelope, please?
1: Thank
3: you. The winner is the French Connection, Philip D'Antonio,
0: producer. To listen to Phil D'Antonio's voice. How many cigars and whiskey go into a voice like this? Listen to this.
3: Yeah. Well, it's uh, obviously a great honor uh, to think that the uh, French Connection will uh, rank with all the pictures uh, that have come to, uh, to this particular place in the history of the Oscars. On behalf of uh, Billy Freakin, I want to personally uh, thank all the members of our cast and crew, 20th Century Fox, and of course the Academy. It's, I still don't believe it. Thank you very much.
0: That's a good good abbreviated speech there from Phil D'Antoni. So there's a lot to really love and appreciate about the French Connection. I hope you'll give the film a rewatch and keep an eye out for some of the things that I pointed out. There's many things I forgot to mention or could have mentioned, but to keep this in a relatively realistic time frame for you to absorb, hopefully in one sitting or one very long walk, I'm going to call it right there. So thank you so much as ever for listening to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. And I will be back soon with another film for your enjoyment. Thanks again.